listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Great to have you back with us this Sunday. Adam, Mark, great to have you guys back for sure. This place isn't the same without you. So we are glad you're back. We're continuing our study of salvation. And so what we've done is this summer, we're taking this theological topic of salvation. Anyone remember the big nerdy theological word for the study of salvation? It does start with an S. Soteriology. Soteriology is what we're studying. We're doing that because we've said everyone's a theologian, right? Everyone is walking around with thoughts, with assumptions about who God is, about who you are about if you need saving, what you need saving from, what your role is in that, what God's role is in that. We're all thinking these things. And so the question isn't, are you a theologian? The question is, are you a good one? Are we thinking rightly and understanding rightly who God is and who we are? And so we framed it like this. When you take all the Bible says about salvation, about God's work in our lives, it talks about it really in three ways. as a past event, And we're really going to zero in on that today. It also talks about it as an ongoing process in our lives. We'll hit more on that next week. But it also talks about it as a future event, that we have not tasted the fullness of our salvation yet, that it is coming. And so last week we talked about regeneration. And we learn when the Bible gives us this picture of salvation, it doesn't give us this picture of uh, some moral teaching. It doesn't give us this picture of us just being a little bit better versions of ourselves, putting lipstick on the proverbial pig, right? What's the picture? No debt, no less than the dead being brought to life. That's the picture it gives us for salvation. Today, we're going to talk about an aspect of salvation that's so, so, so important because many of us, if you just hear kind of how we naturally talk about salvation, y'all, we miss like half the story. And so a lot of times when people talk about salvation, we think only in terms of subtraction. So what's the most common thing people will say? Hey, are you saved? Yes. My sins have been forgiven. They have been subtracted from me, right? And amen. That's great. That is great news, and that is absolutely necessary for salvation. But here's the deal this morning. This is only enough to make you neutral before God. And I want you to picture something. Picture maybe the NFL draft. So we, we had that in the spring. The NBA draft was not that long ago. And you've all seen it. You know, the commissioner comes up there. Everybody boos him. Everyone hates commissioners these days for some reason. So everybody boos him. And then he calls out some young man's name. His dream comes true. He comes out there, big old grin. And what do they do? They give him a hat. He puts the team hat on. They give him the jersey with his name on it. You know, he holds up the jersey. Cheese. They take the picture. That's how it works for everybody. Imagine this. Imagine the commissioner gets up there, boo, they call the guy's name, guy comes out, they go to give him his hat, and he says, no, actually, I'm actually never going to wear that hat. Now, here's what I'll do. I'll promise I'll never wear another team's hat. Oh, okay, well, here's your jersey. No, no, no. You know what? I'm never going to wear that jersey. But here's what I'll do. I'll promise I'll never wear another team's jersey. Is that enough? No, that's not enough to be on the team, right? Imagine a wedding. Comes time to, to say the vows and to exchange rings. And, and that bride looks at the groom and says, you know, I'm not going to promise that to you. And I'm not going to put this ring on. But here's what I'll do. I'll promise not to wear anyone else's ring. And I'll promise not to make that, those vows to anyone else. 
Is that enough? No, that's not enough to be married. Imagine a kid saying, you know what? I'm not going to call you mom and dad. You're not going to be mom and dad anymore. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I just won't call anyone else mom and dad. Is that enough? No. See, y'all, we have a tendency to make heaven kind of like Switzerland. Just for neutral people. People who, yeah, they've had their sins removed, and so they've had their rebellion against God removed. But the problem is salvation, y'all. It's for the sons and daughters of God. It is for the bride of Christ. It is for those who have joined the team. And so the scriptures say salvation is subtraction and addition. You have to have something added to you if you're going to belong to God. You have to be righteous. You have to be righteous before him. So in order to join the team, righteousness has to be added to you. And the way God does that, we call justification. And that's what we're going to talk about today, justification. It's the way Jesus adds righteousness to us. And listen, this is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. This is what makes our faith different from any other faith, any other worldview, is how we're going to learn God does and accomplishes this. So before we get into our passage, uh, let's talk about that word justification. We're going to be in Romans 3, if you want to be turning there. Uh, But first, let's talk about the Bible's overall usage of this word justification. It's the same, the root word is the same word that we translate two ways, justice and righteousness. So what the Greek has one word, we have two to encompass all that it means. And it is a big deal in the New Testament. In fact, I think we've got a chart here. These are all the times that word is used in the New Testament. I know the font's too small to read to fit it all on one slide, and that's the point. It's a lot. All over the New Testament is this concept of justification and righteousness. And the word, uh, the, the original Greek word, it's, it's really a legal term, or you may hear it called a forensic term. It has its roots in, a, in the legal system. And so if someone is righteous... They've upheld the law. They've upheld the standard. So they they drove the speed limit. They paid their taxes, whatever it is. They are righteous in regard to the law. And then think of all we think about in terms of justice. If a a ruler, a king is just, then that means they've they've acted rightly in accordance to God's higher laws, right? And so all that is wrapped up in this one term. And so the way the Bible talks about it, it's talking about it as if you and I have a legal issue before God. And the question here is, are we righteous? Have we met the righteous standard of God's law? And what we're going to see as we unpack this is, here's the deal with God. He is perfectly just. He is a good judge. He is a truthful judge. He is a perfectly righteous judge. And so he will not declare anything righteous that isn't. He cannot call good sin. He cannot call sin good, right? And so when you think about that, many of the ways that we think about justification are actually a little flawed. And so imagine this. Imagine uh, we are all in a courtroom and I'm on trial for something bad, murder. I'm on trial for murder, okay? This ain't no speeding ticket. And y'all, I'm guilty. We've seen all the evidence. It's all there. You're all, all of you saw me do it. You're all witnesses. It was on video. In fact, I Facebook lobbed it while I was doing it, okay? Imagine the judge looks at me and says, well, you know what, Clint, yeah, the evidence, it's overwhelming, but you know what, I've decided murder isn't against the law anymore. 
Well, I mean, it kind of is. It is for other people. I'm going to convict other people of it, but not you. I like you. So for you, it's not against the law. Y'all, is that a good judge? Is that a righteous judge, a just judge? No. That's what we turn it into when we say things like, listen, I know I'm not perfect. You know what? God knows I try hard, and I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Right? No, 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 no. The standard is God's perfect righteousness. And it's not you in comparison to anyone else. It's you in comparison to the law, and you're facing a perfect, truthful, just judge. Or imagine this. Imagine it's into the same trial. I'm guilty, you know, and the judge says, oh, yeah, you're guilty. It is against the law, but I like you. I don't want to get punished. So Mike over there, Mike's going to get punished. And Mike's like, well, I just wandered in here. What, what did I do? What's this? Is that a good judge? Being just? Is it being righteous? We, run in, we got a pickle here, don't we? How on earth can righteous God declare something righteous unless it actually is? And so what he does is he justifies us. Now, that translation doesn't actually encompass what the word means. A, a better, more accurate, full translation would be something like enrighteousify, enrighteousinate. That's what he does. He adds righteousness to us, but those aren't words, so we translate it justifies. Well, when the Bible talks about justify, there, it's talking about there's a way that God adds righteousness to us so that we actually are declared righteous. So with that in mind, let's turn to Romans 3. Romans 3, we're going to read verse 20 through 26, and this is what Paul's doing here. He's unpacking this idea of enrighteousifying us, justifying us. Uh, Let's start in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, time out. Paul has just disagreed with 99.9% of how most people believe and probably about 100% of how people live. And what he's doing is he's presenting here two options of how this can happen, two ways we can be declared righteous. And that's really all there are, y'all. There, I know there's a bunch of different religions, there's a bunch of different worldviews, a bunch of different ways of thinking. It really only boils down to two. And Paul's talking about this first, and we'll call it option A right now. This is the one that Paul is first addressing. And here's, here's the deal with option A. It's done by works. He says it right there. This, this is the option. By works of the law, can you be justified? Is, is what he's talking about. And so, option A, to, to be declared righteous, I have to actually be righteous. I have to have not murdered and you know, paid my taxes and drove the speed limit and all those things. It, it's based on what I, all the good things I do and all the bad things I refrain from doing. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely, because that's how we live. The other thing he says about it is it's a process. So this is how it works. Over time, I stack up enough good deeds and avoid enough bad. You know what I start to do? I start to climb the ladder. And the more good works I have, the more I keep the law, the more righteousness I get, and it adds up as a process over time. And isn't this how it works everywhere we go, right? The more good you do, the better you are, the more righteous you are. We see it uh, every, everywhere you go. There's a hierarchy, isn't there? There's people at the top of the ladder. 
that do all the things that we think are really good and really impressive, whatever those standards are. And then there's all us mediocre people in the middle that do some good and some bad, but maybe not the real impressive stuff. And then, you know, there's the people at the bottom of the ladder who just can't seem to get their act together. Well, that's how it works at school, in our workplaces, in our families, in our church, in other religions. That's how it works, naturally. And so the hope is, if you're going to take option A, by the time your life is over, you've climbed that ladder high enough and added enough good works to yourself that God can look in that great courtroom in the sky and say, well, yeah, you eventually figured it out. You became righteous. Finally, he says about this righteousness is, it's in me. It's in me. And so God is going to declare a righteousness based on what is in me, what I actually have on my own. And so I have to earn it. That's the only way it's coming to me is if I earn it. And listen, plenty of people will say, yeah, God plays a part in that. He helps you. Sure, God will help you. In fact, you may have heard this phrase, uh, infused grace. And that's a view that God's grace is kind of like a fuel for the engine of a race car. Now, does that race car have to have fuel? Yes. Can that race car engine run without fuel? No, it cannot. And so that grace gets added to us. It's the fuel. But listen, that race car is never going to see the checkered flag. It is never going to be declared the winner till it actually drives around the track and wins the race. That car has to actually accomplish the task before it can be declared the winner. In the same way, God may help me, sure. He may give me some grace to put fuel in my engine, but at the end, I have to actually be righteous. I have to accomplish and achieve and keep the law. I've got to earn it. And so what Paul says with this option, essentially what he does in his first sentence, put a big X. Who does he say this process is going to work for? Nobody. The best person you know, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, it doesn't matter. No one is going to be declared righteous by taking option A and keeping the works of the law. It's not going to happen. Not even one person. Thankfully, he's going to give us option B. Let's keep going, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, there's that word, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, option B. How does he say we obtain option B? The last two words I just read. It's by faith. So it's not accomplished by works. It's accomplished by faith. He says in verse 22, listen, not a watered-down righteousness, not an imitation righteousness, the very righteousness of God is available to everyone who does what? Believes, has faith. And so he says it becomes yours as a gift that you receive by faith. So essentially what he's saying, guys, is this ladder, the real ladder, it's only got one rung at the very top. And you get a fast pass to the top by faith. 
by what you believe. Not by works, not by doing it, but as a gift. And so, he says, this justification, it's an event. It's a declaration. It's an event that has happened to you, and no one can change it. And I can't emphasize this enough. He says in verse 23, all who believe have been justified. That's the aorist tense, a past event that has ongoing consequences. And that's almost always when you see that word, that's the tense that it is in. It means that it is always yours. In the same way, once a judge has declared something, once he has issued a verdict, that's it. It's done. It's been declared. It has been ruled, and it is so. It cannot be changed. See, God's not not waiting to see how you turn out, not waiting to see how many good works you can pile up and how you live your life. No, 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 no. If God's declared you righteous, you have it all. It's done. It is an event. It has been declared. The verdict has been issued. And you cannot take away from it, and you cannot add to it. Finally, he says, it's, this righteousness that I'm get is not in me. Where is it? It's in Christ. It's in Christ. It's his righteousness. He said it three times. It's in Jesus. He's going to go on to say in Philippians 3, we'll look in a little bit, he's going to say, the righteousness I end up getting, it is not a righteousness of my own. It's not mine. It's his righteousness that I get. How does that happen? Well, he says he was a propitiation uh, by his blood. And so Mark talked about that with atonement. This is how our sins get forgiven. He was a substitute sacrifice. There's the subtraction, right? But we also see the addition. He says in verse 21, the very righteousness of God has been manifested. It's appeared. We have seen the righteousness of God lived out. Where? Or should I say, who? Who lived out the righteousness of God? Jesus Christ. He's the one that did that. And men and women, this is why the life of Jesus matters. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just like beam Jesus straight to the cross, straight to Calvary? Why do we have to wait around 33 years for Jesus to live a little bit? I mean, you send him to the cross, he can die, he can rise again, and that's salvation, right? Incomplete. Jesus came and lived the perfectly righteous life. That's why the, the scriptures call him the last Adam. He, he fulfilled all the obedience as a man that Adam was intended to. And so this, in righteousifying, this justification means all his obedience, all of his righteousness, all of his justice, everything that he earned becomes yours in him. You're with him, you see. That's how you become righteous. Let's keep reading. Pick it back up in verse 25. It says, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be, and listen to this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is an amazing, miraculous phrase, that God is just and the justifier. So God remains just. He is not some arbitrary judge who says, well, something's against the law for one person and not the other person. Who says murder isn't murder, or arbitrary lets someone off while he convicts someone else. And men and women, this is great news. Listen, if you have ever longed for, 
yearn for somebody to finally make things right. You want God to be just. If you've ever pleaded for Him to put an end to evil, sin, suffering, then you want God to be just. We don't want Him to be just with us all the time, but we sure want Him to be just with all the suffering and evil that we endure, don't we? And He is. He's just. That's great news. And at the same time, He's our justifier. He is our enrighteousinator. He enrighteousifies you. He adds Jesus' righteousness to you as a gift by faith in Christ. And it's event. It's done. Just and your justifier. Let's keep reading. Paul, in the next chapter, Romans 4, he, he further illustrates God's justification here. But he's going to switch uh, he's going to switch his metaphor. He's going to use kind of accounting language here in chapter 4. We'll read verse 1 through 5, chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, and believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul says here, hey, let's talk about Abraham. Because you know what? Everyone agreed that Abraham was righteous. The Bible says it, Old Testament, New Testament, over and over again. Even the most staunch legalist agreed that Abraham was righteous. Well, how did that work? How does the Bible say Abraham was righteous? He says, hey, he could have taken option A. And if he had taken option A, you know what? The righteousness that he had, it wouldn't have been a gift. It would have been what? A wage. It would have been earned. And then he'd had a whole lot to brag about and to boast about. I climbed that ladder all the way to the top and earned it. That's not what the Bible says. That's not even what the book of Genesis says. First of all, Genesis says that Abraham was declared righteous before he's even given the law. Before he even has a, a law to keep, he's declared righteous. Well, how does that work? How can someone be declared righteous apart from the law, before the law? Well, what does it say he did? He believed. He had faith. And that faith, he said, was credited to Abraham as righteousness. That word credited, it's an accounting term, okay? It's the same root word we get, uh, uh, a logbook. And so a logbook is a full keeping of your, say, your bank account. All the credits, all the debits, all the transactions. It's, just, it's the same word. And so here's what God is saying happened here. He's saying, well, imagine what happens when you go to a store to, to swipe your credit card or your debit card. You know, you take it, and sometimes you got to swipe, sometimes you got to insert, you never know what to do, but you go and you insert it in or whatever, and then it starts thinking. It says processing. What's going on is that thing is processing. Well, the first thing that little computer inside the register does is send a message to your bank's computer saying, hey, this person wants to buy something. Do they have enough money in their account? They're checking your logbook. And hopefully, if all things go well, your bank sends a message back saying, yes. They have the money in their account. It has been credited to their account. They can make the purchase. Well, Paul's saying here, when it came to decide if Abraham was righteous, God looked at Abraham's account, and guess what? Even before the law came, his account was full. 
all the righteousness he needed had already been credited to that account. Now, again, the nerdy theological term for what Paul's talking about here is imputation. Righteousness gets imputed to us. Imputation means the, it's the understanding that God justifies sinners by reckoning, or you could say crediting, Christ's righteousness to their account, to our account. And so we get enrighteousinated, we get at righteousness added to us by God crediting Jesus' righteousness to us. And this is so important. This is, this is very different from that infused grace we were just talking about, because it's not theoretical. It's absolutely not. It is absolutely becomes yours. Tell me this, if your bank account, do they differentiate the money in your account between what you earned and maybe something that was a gift to you? Some, uh, some money that came in as a gift, do they say, well, that's not really your money, or maybe one day when you die, that'll be your money, but, or it's kind of your money, but not, not the same as the money you earned. No. In fact, guys, I thought of a great way we can test this. You can all send me money this week. I'll give you my Venmo. We'll come back next week, and we'll see if the bank has put that money in my name, and it is really fully mine. I don't know why you're, why you're laughing. I thought that was a really spiritual exercise that we could do. Men and women, when God imputes his righteousness, when he enrighteousifies you, it is yours, fully, irrevocably, in your account. It has been added to you. That's what Paul's saying here. And then verse 5, he says the, one of the best phrases that has ever been written in the world, nothing short of a miracle. He said, God justifies the good. Is that what he says? God justifies the ones who got it all together. God justifies the people who work and climb the ladder. God justifies the earners. No. God justifies the ungodly. Your translation may say, God justifies sinners. What great news. So God says, I know you're ungodly. I know you didn't earn it. I know you didn't climb the ladder. I'm going to give it to you anyway. I know you're a sinner. So I'm going to enrighteousify you. I'm going to freely, as a gift, accepted by faith, give you all of Jesus' righteousness. It's yours. And so here's a, here's a good definition of justification and all the, the Bible teaches about it. Justica- justification is an instantaneous event in which a sinner is forensically, or you could say legally, declared righteous in standing while still in a sinning state. Because it's not in me. It's in Christ. The way Luther put it was, simul justus et peccator. Hopefully none of you know Latin, because clearly I don't either. It means this, same time, just and sinner. At the same time, I have a legal standing before God according to the work of Christ, even while I'm not perfectly righteous in my own nature. He's saying I have a standing over and above my current nature and actions. Isn't that good news? You know, let's look at one more verse, because what Paul does in Philippians 3, we'll read Philippians 3, 7 through 9, is he takes this truth and he looks back over his life and he kind of does some reevaluating. 
on how he used to live. I'll read verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Again here, Paul is using ledger language. He's talking about credits and debits. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I used to open up my ledger and I thought I was rich. It was full of all kinds of things. I mean, you'd open it and you'd see uh, all my works, all my righteousness, all my efforts, my zealousness, all the times I was so careful not to sin, all my attendance and my fasting, my praying, my teaching, memorizing, quiet time, service to the poor. It was all there. I thought I was loaded. But you know what I found out? I found out it was in my ledger, all right, but not as a credit. It was a debt. I thought I was rich. Actually, I was poor as they come. All the things that I thought were earning me so much, turns out he calls them something you're not supposed to say in church. And the ESV is very nice to translate it rubbish. Okay? You could also call it uh, dung, we'll say. Okay? That's what it was. All along. In fact, he says, I only have one asset to my name, but it's the only one that matters, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been credited to my account as a gift. In fact, he says, I don't want anything else on my ledger. That's all I want on there. Let me ask you this morning, ask myself, what is it you're tempted to add to your ledger? other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, you can pack up a few verses before this. He, gi- he gives us the list. I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Man, I was super zealous. I was like the best dude anyone knew. I was awesome. You're going to make your list. What's on it? Because isn't it true, men and women, we are a culture of ladder climbers and wage earners. Everywhere we go. It starts from the very beginning. I mean, even from the time we are in school all the way to when we go to work, our whole lives, we earn what we get. That's how it works. I show up, I perform, and then I receive my wage. Maybe that wage is grades. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's respect, reputation, comfort, possession, security. I got to work to earn all those things. And this is even how we operate in relationships, isn't it? So I know how this goes. I make myself lovable, attractive, clearly. Again, I don't know why you're laughing. Likeable, got to be friendly, got to appear wise, respectable. Then, you know, I got I to minimize, I got to hide parts of me that are too messy, not good enough. And if I do that well enough, I earn my wage. I'm accepted, befriended, loved. I climb that ladder of respect and admiration. 
We spend our whole lives, men and women, earning and climbing and earning and climbing and earning and climbing. And some of us, like Paul, get really good at it. And then we come to church. And the easiest thing in the world is to just copy and paste. Copy the way our world works everywhere else and paste that on how it should work with our relationship with God. But men and women, what Paul is begging us to understand is with God, we don't earn and climb. Here's what we do with God. We receive and we rest. That's all we can do is we receive and we rest. Let me ask you this. If it's true, you have all the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. All of it's in your account. What could you, what would you want to add to that? nothing we can add. All we can do is receive what he has given us, the enrighteousness we have received and rest in it. That's all we can do. Now, does that mean we turn into a bunch of like spiritual couch potatoes? Oh, what does it matter? We, we're already righteous. What does it matter what we do? Well, look at Paul. Is that the effect that this truth seemed to have on his life? Absolutely not. See, men and women, God wants to transform your daily life. He wants you to experience him in his daily life. And, and that's a part of salvation called sanctification. And we'll talk about that next week. Absolutely. And it is important, but you will never get there unless you get this right first. You'll never get there. You'll never experience the Christian life until you get this right. In fact, I'll tell you, listen, and we, we've all been there. We all experience these seasons in our life. When we get this backwards, that's when church becomes a mix of drudgery and boredom. It's because we're, it's when we're, all the time, it's when we're trying to live in option A. We're trying to earn it, find it in me. And we all go through those seasons, or even in our personal relationship with God sometimes. You know, I'm in God's word, worship, prayer, it all feels dead. And it feels like work, it feels like a chore, it feels like discipline. It does not feel restful in any way. Certainly not in the way fishing or Netflix or baseball or even my job is sometimes, right? Almost always, y'all, when we experience that in our lives, we, we tend to think of that as a circumstance issue. I move some things around, and life gets a little less busy, the kids grow up, you know, fill in the blank. Whenever this or that changes, maybe that'll get fixed. It is never a circumstance issue. It is always a heart issue. It's always because we're living in option A. And so this is the part you have to get right first. Because you know what's true, also true 100% of the time? 100% of the time, anytime you see someone who loves others, who gives their life away, who lives generously, who the things of God are unmovably at the top of their priority list, and not in a way that's drudgery or a chore. No, no, no. It is life-giving. It is meaningful. It is even, you would say, restful. 100% of the time, that person is living in option B here. They are not seeking to add a thing to their ledger. They, are, they have received all of Jesus' righteousness, and they are resting in it, and that's what it looks like. You don't get this right. You will miss out on the Christian life. So let me ask you this morning. Have you received his righteousness by faith as a gift? Have you believed in him? If you haven't this morning, you can. You can receive the gift simply by believing, simply by faith. 
And if that's you this morning, we would love to talk with you. For those of you who have put your faith in him, let me ask us this morning, having received it, are you resting in it? Are you still trying to earn and climb? Let's pray this morning. Ask for God's help to receive and rest in what he has done. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.